Today's guest is Noor Al-Khaldi, Palestinian-American host of the podcast Arab American Psycho. This is one of my favorite podcasts. Really, I'm honored that you guys wanted to have me on. Requests for you to come on. Several people saying, Noor E, Noor E. It was me sending those messages. <laughs> Highlight all different cultures and backgrounds. Just had a guest on who's Hawaiian, and it's really interesting learning about Hawaiian people because their experience, lots of parallels to the Palestinian experience, and anyone who's experienced colonization you can just instantly relate their literature at the time is talking about we're going to colonize they are the native people check the documents i think there was very much this idea that like if you are a hijab wearing person it's like you are in this one little box and you're just like a quiet submissive muslim woman which i am just like who created this narrative I, name one muslim woman you've ever met in your life who you're like oh she's so docile and quiet there yeah. are zero Hello and welcome to episode 37 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok. Michael Schertzer on Instagram. And you can call me Mikey Intifada if you think wearing the kofia makes you a terrorist, but you sell a knockoff brand on your website. <laughs> yeah, man, that, that one's confusing. It's like they say, you know, they want it to be theirs, but then they don't want us to wear it. We've been wearing it forever. They just started to. It's all over the place. Very complicated relationship they have with it. Very. Before we get into today's episode, like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. And if you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. We are also going strong on Patreon, so if you love the Palestine Pod and want to support the project, join our Patreon where you get early access to the Palestine Pod episodes and additional one to two podcasts per week, including our latest creation, the Patreon Pod. It's a little more laid back. We talk politics, Palestine, pop culture, and get a little more personal. We also host our monthly Zoom happy hours for our Patreon subscribers only, so really exciting stuff. Check us out on patreon.com slash palestinepod. Today's guest is Noor Al-Khaldi, Palestinian-American host of the podcast Arab American Psycho, which, by the way, I love that name. You're going to have to tell us how you came up with that. <laughs> She's a creative, a consultant. You may see her on Instagram as at Noor E. She is always dressed to the nines, fashionista. Noor, welcome to the Palestine Pod. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very honored and excited and like... This is one of my favorite podcasts, so I'm I really am honored that you guys wanted to have me on. You know what? We had a so we had requests for you to come on. Mm -hmm. People, people. yeah, <gasps> yes. I'm like, I mean, we wanted I you hate. as well. But we wanted in you, addition, <laughs> yes. The people were like, bring her on, and we said yeah. we listen to the people. Oh yeah. my god, who we are posted these it. We them. posted it in stories. We're like, who do you guys want to see on the Palestine Pod? And we got several people saying, Noor E, Noor E. Yeah, oh, it was it was me sending those messages, but it doesn't <laughs> the messages were sent and that's what's important. And then yeah. they were received. <laughs> they yeah. sent and received. Yeah, well, I did your podcast in May. Yeah. And and we were talking at a time which was super hectic, obviously, with everything going on and our attempts as Palestinians in exile to try to shed light and uh, raise awareness about what's happening in Palestine. It was a pleasure to be on your podcast. Arab American Psycho, I was like, when I got your message, I was like, wait, what, what is that? <laughs> wait a second. What, what is this about? Is what this, is this? <laughs> is this an Islamophobic? I was is like, this is this real? Anti-Arab like, yeah. podcast? Yes. Do you have people that think that? <laughs> not. I was not concerned. Normal. I was like, wait, let me check this out. I was like, oh, okay. She seems legit. <laughs> She's, she doesn't seem like she's pretending to be a Palestinian. Yeah. No, I mean, honestly, I don't, I've never actually had anyone give me shit for it. Oh, am I allowed to curse? I am yeah, so sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, super duper. 
Okay. Um, but the only negative feedback I've ever received has been from like any type of like podcasting corporation or agency that's like contacted me, they have issue with it. I was told once that they were worried that it would be offensive. And I was like, well, who would be offended by it? Because I'm an Arab and I'm not offended by it. No other Arabs that I know have ever been offended by it. And maybe psychos would be offended by it. Yeah. I think, I think personally fans of the movie American psycho potentially (laughs) like maybe not Arabs, but maybe like people in mental health, like the usage of the term psycho. I don't know. Right. I mean, and, and you know, that is something that I considered because I was in the mental health field for like seven years but mm-hmm. it's, I, I thought it was obviously just like a play on, you know, the movie American Psycho, which it is. Right. I just added Arab and a hyphen. I bet you Christian Bale talked to somebody, you know? That's uh, I, I, I that's hope why Christian this, Bale's talking about it. <laughs> that's why the suits were upset. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, but other than that, I feel like most people who listen to my podcast came from you know instagram and they they know me they know i'm just always in a silly goofy mood and so yeah you know sometimes i'll i'll make podcasts and call them arab american psycho and it's just it's a little lol moment yeah (laughs) so you've been going for a while now on your podcast yeah i'm i'm almost i think at three years of having it my baby it's almost yeah yeah thank you we started this six months ago so if you have any advice for us let us know Three years uh, is like you're you're a veteran, basically. I'm yeah. like, do do you guys do you rest? Is there time for rest? Are we resting? Because having a podcast, there's no do time we, for resting. Do we take like a week off? You mean? Yeah. Yeah, or like even just like I don't know. It's it's very time consuming. It's it's extremely time consuming. Like everything about like you know from booking guests to scheduling to uh you know recording to editing post production do you do everything it. yourself i do i am a one man show that respect yeah. respect yeah 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 like i'm doing it all and sometimes i question my decisions and why i do them and i'm like do i hate myself do i want to suffer <laughs> But no, it's it's genuinely one of my favorite creative outlets. It's it's my favorite platform. It's my favorite audience. Everyone who listens to my podcast knows that like they are my favorite audience because I feel like it is just so much more intimate. And then obviously like Instagram is very, it's very superficial for the mm-hmm. most part. It's very much like, oh, here's me. Uh, here's 3000 photos of me wearing outfits. It's really nice to be able to allow people to connect with me in a different way, in a more meaningful way. And I think it's, yeah, it's, it's a really great way to build community through podcasts. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about how Palestine has shown up in your podcast. I remember when I was on your show, you were like, these last few weeks, I'm only talking about Palestine. Yeah. And it was a sudden sort of shift yeah. because normally you cover, you know, topics like identity, relationships, friendships. I mean, really any, any and everything. Right. Yeah. But when we spoke, you were like, I don't want to talk about anything else. Yeah. Was that really the first time that Palestine had kind of appeared in your shows? No, it definitely wasn't the first time that I, I I mean, I definitely feel like it's something that had, because it's a part of my identity. So when we're having conversations about identity, obviously Palestine is going to come up and my podcast is very much all about kind of just like very organic conversation. It's really meant to sound like, you know, two friends on FaceTime. So, you know, topics come up, Palestine comes up, my parents come up and, and all of it just kind of will eventually in some way, shape or form, Palestine comes up because it's very much a part of who I am. But I think, you know, when I was only having guests on that were, you know, active in the Palestinian movement, that was a really conscious decision to make because it was such an important time. And I, you know, wanted to try to keep that momentum. I wanted to continue to educate people about it. I wanted people to hear lots of different perspectives from people living in Palestine, people who are, you know, refugees. I I wanted to allow people to really get the full scope of the Palestinian experience to the best of my ability. So I definitely, you know, did that for quite a while. I think it was like 
something like 12 episodes back to back and I'm releasing episodes weekly. So it was really just Palestine was the main focus for a pretty significant amount of time. And I mean, Palestine still obviously comes up for me. I, I felt a little emotionally, a little emotionally drained, to be honest with you. Uh, mm-hmm. It was kind of just taking a toll on me, where it was like a noticeable difference to my mom and and everyone around me. I just was very much. It, it's it's it can be really it can be heavy, and it's not something that I want to like complain about because it's like yeah, it's hard for me to talk about it. Imagine living there and living it. Like you know what I mean? It feels very bratty to even be like, oh, I was feeling emotionally drained. It's definitely still something that I I want to continue to highlight throughout the entirety of the podcast. I do like to highlight all different cultures and backgrounds. That's something that is really important to me. And I, I wanted to continue to be able to do that. Like I just had a guest on last week who was Hawaiian and it's really interesting interesting learning about Hawaiian people because their experience lots of parallels to the Palestinian experience. And, and that is a theme throughout the entirety of my podcast. You know, you speak to people from all different countries and anyone who's experienced colonization, you can just instantly relate. It's like, yeah, we, you know, we've, we've all, for the most part, experienced this in some way, shape or form. And I think that makes it a lot easier for people to empathize with the Palestinian people. Can you tell us where your family's from? My parents are both refugees who moved to Gaza. I think my mom was maybe a few months old. My dad was probably like a year and a half old. Dad was from a city called Karatiya that no longer exists. It was probably 20 minutes away from Gaza, so close to Gaza. And my mom was also from a small city outside of Gaza, which also no longer exists. But yeah, I would say my parents are from Gaza because that's just what they've always said. But I actually didn't find out until this year that both of my parents were refugees and they weren't born in Gaza. Yeah, like the majority of people in Gaza, actually, they're refugees from the Nekba. And And I I literally didn't know. Like I truly had no idea. Yeah, I'm looking up Karatia right now. Karatia was a Palestinian village of 1,370 people located 18 miles northeast of Gaza. They were driven out in 48? Yes. So as a part of a new policy, the Haganah blew up a house in Karatiya on the night of December 9th, 1947. The orders to the Givadi Brigade who executed the order had been for two houses. Karatiya was captured by Israel's 89th Mechanized Battalion, Commander Moshe Dayan, on July 18th, 1948, as a part of Operation Death to the Invader. What? Who's the invader, though? (laughs) Yo, we were talking about how they straight up project onto Palestinians. And Operation Death to the Invader could not be more of a projection. That's yeah, it's like just just say you hate yourself and call it a day. You don't need to do this. Just say we are the invaders and we we don't like that instead of, you know, taking Calling it out us the invaders when we're there and you expelled us. Like Also, their literature at the time is literally talking about we're going to colonize. They are the native people. Like check the documents. It's gaslighting at at its finest, yeah. truly. Like they just really decided you know what, we are going to just completely project all of our insecurities onto these people who are truly living their lives, minding their own business, and people will believe it. And people do believe it. According to historian Benny Morris, the village was harassed by machine gun fire and abandoned by its inhabitants. It's really funny how... Abandoned. Yeah, it's funny how people who are fleeing for their safety like in this case the the, the village was harassed by machine gun fire mm-hmm. and so you, harassed is <laughs> such a soft word yeah harassed yeah harassed. That, that's the quote how do you benny harass morris. somebody with machine gun fire <laughs> well look, yeah we know that benny morris is you know he's he's an israeli historian he is we don't agree I on think everything. The word he's looking for is <laughs> we don't terrorized. Agree on every, we yes. don't agree right? on everything. He, but they, the village was terrorized by gunfire, machine gunfire. Like yeah, like uh, as soon as a, a 
firearms and weaponry is involved, it's no longer simply harassment. Walk the streets of New York daily. You ever had machine gun fire happen? No, I get what would be considered light harassment. You know, just just your everyday catcalling. That's see, that's that's harassment. Now, if there was any guns involved, I would not be like, oh, I got harassed today. I would yeah. be like, my life was threatened yeah. today. Look, I mean, uh, yeah, we can we can go into the the critiques of Benny Morris that have been made by Finkelstein, Masalha, Ilan Pape, etc. But I do think it's interesting that he at least admits that the Zionists use machine gun fire on the village and the people fled as a result. He, he says abandoned, which, by the way, as I was saying, is interesting language because you know, when people flee, for example, their homes because of a natural disaster, because there's danger and they have to leave their homes, in no other situation do we accuse them of having abandoned their homes to allow others to move in. Can you imagine? You're not giving up title because you need to leave because there's like a flood warning. You know what I mean? Right. You're certainly not giving up title because the Zionists are spraying your village with machine gunfire. That's a very manipulative tactic to try to rewrite what in fact did happen, which was not harassment. It was very much violent. It was very much terrorism. And, you know, my dad was really young when he left, but he remembers violence that much. He cannot forget because that is something that will stand out to you regardless of how young or old you are. It's yeah, no, they didn't just leave it because they were like, oh, we're being harassed. Like they also didn't leave because they were like, Oh, we're so done with this house. Like we're no, over it. You know, no, <laughs> it's and, your house. It's your property. And it's so interesting. Cause even the way my dad speaks about it today, he, he will always mention but we were so lucky. We were right. we were so lucky. So many people were not as lucky as us because, you know, we had family who did live in Leza. So we had somewhere to go. Like we weren't, you know, left on the streets. Like we had somewhere to go to. And and even, you know, my mom and my dad, every time they talk about their experience living in Leza, they will consistently just remind me and remind themselves like, but we were so lucky. We were so grateful. I never saw my dad shot outside of my home. That happened to my mom's neighbor. They pulled all the men out of the house. They lined them up and they shot them all. Yeah. And my mom was like, at least that, uh, that didn't happen to me. Like I had it, I had it good. Like mm. I didn't see my father get murdered in front of my home. So like, it's, it's really wild how people even now, like, even with all the information that's very much readily available, even with so many Palestinians on the ground sharing what is happening, people are just like, no, it's not, it can't be that bad. They would never do that. And it's like, wh why would people make this up? Yeah, for sure. I just want to say, just to close on Karatia, after the Nekba, obviously the, uh, the area that was Karatia was incorporated into the new state of Israel. and. In August 20th of 1948, Ben-Gurion presented a plan for 32 new Jewish settlements on newly depopulated Palestinian villages. And with respect to Karatia, there was a proposal for a settlement named Otsem and Komimyot. <laughs> I don't know. That's a very weird one. Eventually, three villages were founded on the land of Karatia. They were populated then with the newly arrived Jewish settlers. The Palestinian historian Walid Khalidi described Karatia in 1992 and he said that piles of debris are scattered on the site and a destroyed cemetery can be seen, partially hidden amongst eucalyptus trees. So Zionists have been destroying our cemeteries for decades now. To, nothing new. Yeah, nothing new. He continued, an agricultural road runs through it. Grain and alfalfa are grown by Israeli farmers on the site and surrounding lands. So they have destroyed our cemeteries and they are now replacing us on the land as if we were never there. Where did you say your mom's village was? You don't remember? I'm going to be completely candid with you. I don't remember the exact name of it. Um, she, that's, you know, and like I mentioned before, I didn't even know my parents were refugees until this year. Isn't that crazy? It's, it, they don't, 
They don't talk they don't, about it. They they it's they don't want to talk about it. Uh, they they don't they, yeah. they they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to like I've told my mom several times I'm like you have extreme childhood trauma, not just in a way where like, you know, I'm like I have childhood trauma like you were mean to me once. Like no, like actual real childhood trauma because of, you know, living in Palestine. I think it's hard for her to even speak about it because I think speaking about it makes it feel that much more like I think she realizes as she's talking about it just off of our reactions like oh no this was this was very bad this was very traumatic this was really violent like this was nothing about this was normal no child should have to see hundreds of dead bodies by the time they're 5 years old I think it's just really difficult for them to speak about it but i think now that i'm older i'm the youngest of my siblings now that my siblings are older i'm older they they do feel a little bit more comfortable speaking about it but even now like it's just it's very emotional for them it's very hard they don't want to relive their trauma and that's exactly what it is when they talk about it they are reliving their trauma and it's it's not something that i think that they want to experience once let alone experiencing again through speaking about it but it is important that they speak about it Dude, I get that, but for me, it's it makes me want to shake my, you know, my mom or my yeah. grandparents because I'm like, you have to remember, you have to tell me, you know, there's this obsession with learning this because for us, it's our connection to Palestine. Yeah, and I mean, I had my podcast for, like I said, I've had it for almost three years, and I had been begging my mom to please come on the show. Mm. I really wanted her to come on. She did come on earlier this year around the two week long attacks on Gaza because it became clear to her that it was really important for her to share those experiences and for her to share her story. It really resonated with a lot of people and it really, I think, impacted, I think, the way people, their understanding of the reality of Palestinians today just by hearing, you know, my mom was born in 1948. Her birthday is actually the Nakba. That is my mom's birthday. Yes, she that is her birthday. She's never, that poor woman, never has never felt joy on her day of birth because, you know, that's the day that everything was taken away from her family, from her grandparents, from, you know, her relatives. They, they really, truly lost everything. And had to kind of try to rebuild. And it was just this constant struggle of attempting to rebuild their lives and have some sense of normalcy and, and never being able to have that because, you know, Zionists really made sure that they were suffering every minute of every day to, to get them to either be killed or leave. That's, that's what they wanted. They wanted to eradicate the Palestinian people and have them be this distant memory. Like, oh yeah, maybe they, occupied this land at some point but they're not here anymore yeah have you traveled to palestine yeah i went to Gaza once when i was probably five or six years old and i remember it uh, lots of rubble everywhere just rubble everywhere that much is clear the people were actually so surprisingly like kind and excited and, and happy and everyone was so friendly and there really is this sense of community there that even as a child like stood out to me like even like the owners of like the corner stores they found out like oh these are your grandparents or this is your family and we're like here have some cotton candy just for me being a part of a family you know what I mean and it, it there is this really beautiful tight-knit community that they have but my mom did something which I think was more impactful for my older siblings. They're all American citizens. We all have American passports. But when we traveled to Gaza, my mom only wanted us to travel with the Palestinian documents, which is called a hawiya. And they waited at the border for two days before my mom even showed them the American passports. And everyone who was waiting to, to enter Gaza kept telling her, like, you're obviously American. Your children are speaking in English. They're you're obviously American. Why are you not just showing them your American passport? My oldest sibling is 17 years older than me. So my mom really wanted to make sure my siblings were able to have a deeper understanding of what it feels like to actually be a Palestinian and the way you are treated as a Palestinian. Obviously, after two days of us being, you know, in this room, just sitting on the ground, I was probably complaining about something. Everyone was whiny. Eventually, my mom did say, hey, we're American. 
and they let us right in. And I think that was also really impactful for my siblings to just see, oh, well, now that we're American, we, we're real humans. We, we can be treated with dignity now. But, you know, when you're a Palestinian, that Trying to go to Palestine. Not given to you. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I have a story about my buddy Ramsey, who's Palestinian. He's American as well. And he was either coming in or going out and they like he started to walk on the other side of the line and they threw him to the ground, put like a machine gun in his back. And then he was like, I'm American. And the guy who had a machine gun on him was also American. He was one of those lone soldiers. And so he was like, oh, what's up, dude? I'm from New York. And so he like pulled him up off the ground dusted him off and like let him right through. I mean, that's absolutely not surprising at all, but also very disturbing. Yeah. I think every Palestinian who's traveled to Palestine, especially if they hold a passport from a, a respected country, they've, they've experienced that. They've felt that knowing that you have value suddenly, suddenly your life matters to these people. But if you are a Palestinian, your life, truly means nothing to them you're dehumanized completely i mean it's just so crazy to me to think like ramsey is palestinian he is obviously in the united states because his family was expelled from palestine then he goes back to palestine and the person who is manning the checkpoint is from the united states right living it's, in palestine it's trippy it's trippy it's, it's so trippy like and then like once they he realizes that they share that connection, which is basically just a settler colonial identity, right? Wrapped up in a bunch of war crimes. <laughs> he's like, he's like, hey, I also like burgers and pizza. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, doesn't he takes the gun off him? Like, hey, I think if given the opportunity, every Palestinian in that line would like burgers and pizza as well, right? So it's like, right. maybe give them the same level of respect yeah it's like no you like met luba so <laughs> and, and, right. and i don't and i don't like, like that. Yeah, yeah 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 but also it's israeli right oh yeah right, oh, right, right. that's another thing <laughs> that I've, luba, uh, but it's <laughs> i've had a very troubling time here in new york where now yeah. before i go to any restaurant that even even if it says met luba on the menu that's you it, can't trust that you can't and 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 more times than not it is very much not a palestinian restaurant and i'm like this is so not okay i shouldn't have to do in-depth research before going to a restaurant that has palestinian items on the menu to make sure it is actually owned by palestinians that's happened to me way too many times and it, it's yeah but luckily a lot of the restaurants on yelp they will They'll write it. It's Palestinian owned, just to yeah. make it clear. Yeah. Have you been to Tanurin? Not yet, but it is on my list of places to go to. There's actually, pleasantly, I have found that there are a lot of Palestinian restaurants yeah. in New York. So I, I've been trying to make my way through, through some of them. And there, there are so many amazing, and it's just, it's really beautiful though. There is a very large Palestinian community here and yeah they've been here for so long. Like I didn't even know that, like even some of the neighborhoods, like in the seventies were very much like known as like primarily Palestinian neighborhoods, which is so interesting. And there's, there's so many restaurants, bakeries, grocery stores. And, and that part has been really nice to, to just be able to, to see Palestinian people thriving. Yeah. It's, it's nice to see Palestinian people not just constantly fighting for their life. Yeah. There's also Kanun, I think, the restaurant called Kobe. Yeah. You can go to the Google reviews for places and the Israeli ones will let you know that they're Israeli because they say it like a million times. Yeah. And there's also a bunch of fake comments, you know what I mean, from people who've clearly never eaten there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that happened to uh, another Palestinian-owned restaurant called Ayat, where... Yes a bunch of Zionists were leaving horrible, horrible reviews. You know, again, just you can't, how can we allow Palestinians to have any, you know, success or happiness in their life? You know, let's take that away from them. But what they did not anticipate is I think the amount of people 
who weren't even Palestinian, who were so offended by it that they made a huge deal about it on TikTok and other platforms. And I think the amount of positive comments at this point has outweighed the the fake negative comments from people who actually have never even been there. But yeah, it's just yeah. like the, 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 the hatred and the disdain for Palestinian people runs so deep that like, they're like, you're not even in Palestine anymore because we took that away from you, but we want you to, we still want you to suffer. Yeah. Yes. Hatred and disdain, but like layered on top of, and we're going to steal your food also. And it's like, listen, it's I get very it. It's complicated. It's, it's so interesting. My mom, one of the stories that she told me recently about Palestine is she remembers vividly because she went to college in Cairo and was not able to visit her family for about five years because she was not able to re-enter Gaza. She said that she remembers taking the train and she was passing through I think like Naples and she was like I just remember thinking Palestine is so beautiful and she was like it made me cry the beauty made me cry and she's like I'm not it, it doesn't surprise me that they would want to steal our land because it is truly so beautiful and mm -hmm. it's it's just so magnificent that, and she's like and it was just heartbreaking because also I can't imagine leaving home at 17 and then not seeing your family for five years. Like she had a younger sibling who she had never met. She met him for the first time at the age of three, just because she wanted to get an education and could not do so living in Gaza. Yeah. My parents had the same story. They also went and studied in Cairo and then weren't allowed back of during their studies. Yeah. But that's, you know, the sacrifice they had to make to get an education. And if you know anything about Palestinians, you know that they're obsessed with education. So my mom texts me every day. Are you sure you don't want to get a PhD? I'm like, yeah, no, mom, I'm cool. I'm good. <laughs> no, I'm sure. She was like, you should just like, just get a PhD. That's what just they always do. They always just tell you to just do it and then you'll have it. And then yeah, you just, yeah, have, just, it just to to have, have it to have it. Just, just to have, have it. it. <laughs> just have a PhD just in case you might want to use it some way i don't just know or you could just it. tuck it away no one even needs to know like you're like mom you can't you can't just like pursue as as like a plan c a phd actively and then have everyone think it's your plan a when it's your plan c it's a lot of work and 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 dedication and devotion for her it's just like oh just do it and then you'll have it like you know my mom literally has three masters and a PhD and of like course she does. That's what I'm saying. She's like, yeah, she I does. did it. She's like, I have six kids and I and I she's like, you remember when I was getting my PhD? She would like take us to Chick-fil-A and like let us eat and play while she was like working on her dissertation. And I was like, yeah, no, I remember you doing that. That's that sounds crazy. insane to me. Yeah. No, like it's like really that generational trauma is within you because suffering really just you're just you're drawn to suffering you, yes. you're like this is what makes most my sense mom for me is the same she is a physician and mm -hmm. she was redoing her residency in america after she had already done it mm -hmm. in the middle east but because we became refugees and had to come to the u.s her residency in kuwait did not count Oh, so she had to redo her residency, redo her licensing exams, basically become a doctor twice. And she was going through residency. As you know, residency in the US is like, you don't sleep, you work for yeah. 80 hours in a row. Yeah. Residents are falling asleep at the wheel. They're lobbying for changes to the, you know, the, you know, the situation they're paid like 12 cents, a, you know, an hour. It's a horrible situation. And she did that with three children. And sometimes I'm like, what, who took care of us when we were younger? You know what I mean? And I, I, I honestly don't, I honestly don't know the answer to that. I mean, my dad literally also went to medical school, is a physician, got a master's degree just for funsies. Like I'm done with medical school. I'm a doctor now. And my mom basically was like, do you have like a master's or something? Like you're a loser. Like you should probably, you should probably go get like a master's. Like if, if you're cool, like, you know what I mean? She just really peer pressured it. him. And then he got one. He was like, I mean, I guess I do want to be cool. So let me just, there's nothing more Palestinian than this. No, they, they thing. educate. But the thing is, is my mom. And this is something that she spoke about when she came on my podcast was that for her education was 
not only a form of like hope, but it was also a distraction. It was like a coping mechanism. Some kids, when they're younger, they, they play with toys. My mom, my mom has told me about the game she's played as a child. And I'm like, that's the saddest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. But she would just read books and learn and study for these exams that, you know, sometimes her school would shut down for months at a time because it would have been bombed or something horrific has happened. And she would still study for her exams. And it was really just a way of like, I think, dissociating from the reality of living in a war zone 24 seven, where she was like, this, this gave me hope for having a different type of future that didn't involve what I am currently experiencing. And I think it was really just like a, a survival method for her is was education. And she very much still is of that belief that in order to survive and in order to like protect yourself in your future, you need to educate yourself almost compulsively. And I'm like, well, mom, I was born in Florida, so I do not feel that way. I am so sorry to disappoint you. I made it on Instagram, so. <laughs> I know for my parents, like my mom would just want it so that she could tell her friends, like I got a PhD. And I'm just like, ma, you could lie. You know, like just <laughs> tell, tell them. them I have Zionists a PhD. Zionists are doing it all the time. Yeah. You know? They're not going to check, like. No. And like, you could just change something on Wikipedia, you know, alter it to, to fit whatever narrative you're trying to mm -hmm. uh, perpetuate. Uh, maybe I should start telling people I have a PhD. You can call me put Dr. Put it on Mo. a pamphlet. I hear if you put it on a pamphlet, then it's true. So pamphlet. listen, they, they tell the lie that they have a country every day, right? Like, so we could adopt something. That's what I'm saying. It's just like, you know, maybe we should just be like using their form of terrorism somehow against them. Like, you know, just judo, like mental judo. This yeah. is, but this is the thing. This is, I told you this the other day, Michael, my theory to free Palestine is to have every Palestinian convert to Judaism and go back to Palestine. It's a hard sell. Feels about it's a hard that. sell. Yeah. I feel like my dad. It's fake, though. You fake convert to Judaism. That's true. You a little, convert a little pump fake, a little pump fake to no. Judaism. You, you convert and you convert right back. You see, you convert. Ah, uh, the, the classic conversion reversion. <laughs> yes. Ah, yes. I'm familiar with. I mean, oh. I'm telling you, in New York, though, I'm a Jew. I yeah. am. You right. can't talk right. like legitimately show up <laughs> on Rosh Hashanah. People were saying Shabbatova to me. And I was like, I mean, Shabbatova for sure. But also what's going on? <laughs> Why am I getting Shabbatova? Okay. Let's move to fashion. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you're doing in salting clothing? I mean, like, I feel like a lot of the stuff that you do is like behind the scenes because I see you at all these places and I'm like, what is she doing there? I mean, what are, what are any of us doing anyway? Like, any, any no, like, like what, like, Truly. is she working? Like, is she on the job? Like, is she, you know, like, like, is she a model? Is she, did she put the show together? Like what? I need maybe like, it's Maybelline. Yeah. Maybe, I mean, listen, like, tell us what you do. I'm going to say the thing that I told my dad to help him understand what my job is because not only is it confusing to a 75-year-old Palestinian, it's just overall confusing. Explain um, it to me like I'm a 75-year-old Palestinian. Yeah, speak to us like an immigrant parent, please. Yes, I will speak to you guys like immigrant parents. Okay, so Baba, listen. Uh, no, but no, I am essentially, I do a lot of things. But essentially, I am a walking advertisement. So consumerism, you know, bad. But also, you know, what, what, what can you do? primarily work with fashion brands. And so I will partner with them on specific launches and collections. And it could be either like, you know, here is our new collection, select the pieces that you want to wear, and then you photograph them and then you post them on your Instagram feed. And then it kind of exists like a billboard permanently on my Instagram feed. Say so I do a little bit of advertisement. Where all the clothes come from. There's a lot of clothes. There's a plethora of clothes, no shortage of clothing in my home. But so Do you keep I, the clothes or is it just take a picture, give it back? That's a great question. So yeah. most of the time I do get to keep the clothes. But then, you know, last week I was invited to an event where they sent me a look and 
I wore the look to the event and then they picked it up today. I had to return it because it was a runway look. And usually, usually you're not getting gifted runway looks. I mean, every now and then maybe, but you know, and so like I have another outfit right now that I'm wearing to an event tomorrow night. That's, you know, a runway look. So they loan it to you. And then very sadly and heartbreaking for me, I have to return it. And sometimes, you know, I do think like, what would really happen if I like kept this like one thing? Like, would they notice? But they, they do notice. So, oh yeah, they would notice. They, they notice. So, I mean, for the most part, though, I'm I am being gifted the items. So, it's only mainly for like events. They'll send you an outfit, or like for a fashion show, the designer might send you other pieces to wear to the show, and then you give it back. But yeah, there's there's a lot of I get sent a lot of stuff. People find you on Instagram. Yes, they brands, brands I, find I, you on Instagram. Yeah, but also like I've been in the industry now for eight years. So it's through Instagram, but then also just through like making relationships with people. If you work in PR for one brand, you're probably not going to stay with that brand forever. You're going to move somewhere else. And then typically they take their list of, you know, connections or clients like with them. And it's really nice for me because it's like, oh, now I get to work with this other brand because I worked with this person at this brand. And it's, it's a lot of, PR. It's a lot of building relationships with people and brands. How did you start this? Yeah. I mean, I was, I was, I just graduated from college. I was doing my master's, which I never completed. My mom is, we'll never get over it, but I was just posting. I had a fashion blog. So I would post outfits on my blog. I did have an Instagram account, but I wasn't posting too much fashion on there. And then I kind of shifted more so to posting on Instagram and then blogs kind of became less relevant. And so Instagram kind of became my primary platform for creating. And yeah, I mean, you know, over time, it it, it really was a hobby, though, for many years before it became in any way lucrative or my job. So very much just started out as something that I enjoyed. And also, I think for me, you know, growing up, I, I've always loved fashion as early as like my earliest memories, because I, I lived in Malaysia for a few years. And I remember wanting to buy the September issue of Vogue, which in Malaysia, it's like marked up like, you know, you can buy a magazine in America for like $5. In mm-hmm. Malaysia, it was like 30 ringgits, which I don't know, I think the what the exchange rate is now, but it was a pretty big price jump. And you know, you're a child, you don't, you don't have that much money. And I would like save up my money to buy Vogue and would cut out pictures of like Kate Moss and Gemma Ward and put them on my walls. And I just, it was something that I had loved from afar and never thought that I could be a part of it because I never saw anyone who looked like me in that industry or in that space. And so when I first started posting outfits, it was, I think, because I felt like I wanted to put something out there. I wanted people to see that, you know, you could be a visibly Muslim woman and still love fashion. Like, you know, the two things are not mutually exclusive. Like you can, you can be a Muslim and also like things, uh, which I yeah. think people often people forget. Don't. Like, yeah, for sure. No, I guess for every sure. single. I mean, it's. It, I think people are becoming a little bit less ignorant. Luckily, yeah, but yeah, yeah. for years, I was just constantly being told, "Oh my god, you're so cool." And I'm like, I mean, I know. Like, why are you so shocked? Or you're so funny? Or you have such good taste in music? It's like, yeah, of course I do. Like, what? What are, <laughs> what are you saying to me? Like, you're telling me things that I already know about myself, but I think there was very much this idea that, like, you, if you are a hijab wearing person, it's like you are in this one little box, and you're just like a quiet, submissive Muslim woman. Which I am just like, who created this narrative? I, name one Muslim woman you've ever met in your life who you're like, oh, she's so docile and quiet. There, like, like, there yeah. are zero. Who are they? I've never met. I've never, I've never met, met one either. It shows the narrative was crafted by people with zero contact. Literally with zero contact. And I think it's just for me at this point, you know, it started out very much as like a hobby. I just, it was an outlet for me. And it's just something I was always interested in. But then, you know, once I started actually getting paid, I was like, wait, I can, I can really try to leverage this and, and try to use this as a tool for positioning Muslims, Palestinians, Arabs in, in being perceived in a different way that we 
had not been perceived. And I'm not saying that like I'm single-handedly doing this, like you're welcome. No, I, I think there's a lot of people who no, are but doing there it, is but, impact. There's definitely yeah. impact. And, and, you know, each, each person, each account, each adds up, right. And it creates part of, you know, it creates something of a movement. Have you worked with any Palestinian designers? Yes. I've had the privilege of being able to come across so many incredible Palestinian designers. I want to shout out Mira Adnan. She is an incredible woman from Gaza who just creates beautiful clothing. And yeah, like it's, it feels so surreal to be able to buy things from a Palestinian designer and, and wear these pieces and have people be like, Oh my God, like, where is that from? And yeah, it, 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 that that's, it feels so special to me to be able to do that because obviously there are so many talented Palestinians who, you know, their work is suppressed or, and, and, and even with, with her, you know, creating these pieces of clothing, there are still issues there and, and obstacles because, it's not easy to manufacture yeah. in Gaza. It's yeah, not exactly or to get it out of Gaza. Exactly, or to get it out of Gaza. Like all of these things. I mean, even when I had I had ordered something online through her, and I used PayPal, and then something happened with PayPal. They weren't allowing her to like receive payment, so she had to like refund everyone who purchased things and like have people reorder it again, and and that created an obstacle. And then even you know having things shipped through from Palestine or to the states like the way it's sent it's like they don't want you to get it like she very much put my address on it and i got a text from a random person being like i think your package was delivered to me address that was on the shipping label that they had put placed over the original shipping label just had like my name and then it just said like my just one part of the street and then brooklyn like they they removed parts of my address so like how can you even ship this? Like, where is re- this going to? They redacted it like a CIA report. They literally redacted <laughs> my address. And so luckily the person who it went to, they saw my number on it. And so they texted me and they're like, I have your, your mail. And I was like, well, hopefully I'm, I'm going to come get it. And, you know, fingers crossed I don't get murdered. So, and I didn't. And that's, and, yeah, that's pretty wild because they're actually known for doxing people. Yeah. Oh yeah. The Zionists. Yeah. 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 No, they, 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 and I think that's another thing where my mom has this paranoia. Even when I talk about Palestine, she's just like, well, don't say this and, and don't say that. And you, you know, cause it could affect your family members who live in Gaza. And she is a thousand percent correct. I mean, you know, Zionists are a lot of things, but petty is one word that comes to mind. They really are super petty. It is really cool though. I think, especially with social media, it's it really is a tool for discovering so many talented Palestinians. And I mean, there is no shortage. There is really no shortage of just really amazing Palestinians who are creating all types of art. They're just they are just like everyone else. They are trying to pursue their dreams and their passions and they just have like probably like a thousand more obstacles. I remember when I was in Palestine, I went to the glass factory in Hebron. Mm-hmm. and I ordered a bunch of ceramics and I obviously couldn't take everything home with me on the flight. So they were like, don't worry, we ship, we'll ship it to your house in America. And I was like, Oh, cool. So like, I bought like $400 worth of Palestinian ceramics or something. I was in college, like, you know, it's a lot of money, a lot of ceramics, but I knew yeah. like, I don't know if I'll ever be back. Right. Like, right. This might be my only opportunity to get this stuff. And like three months later, I get a package. The box is like almost not a box anymore. It it looks like somebody has just been climbing up a ladder, dropping it, taking it, climbing up a ladder, dropping it. The box was mangled. Okay. I opened it. Almost every single piece of ceramic is just shattered. Like, This is something where you know that this arrived at like the post office in Israel, wherever, you know, it's going to get processed because Palestinians are not even able to handle their own mail. So they take it from Hebron, then they have to hand it over to somebody, you know, in Israel. And then they're the ones that are going to be responsible for getting it out of the country. You can just tell that they saw that it was from the Hebron glass factory and they're like, oh yeah, let's fuck this up. 
you know, yeah. and then there's no accountability, right? It's just so sad. They use it as a pinata. For sure. Yeah. Like it was a pinata at an occupation army, like, you know, mixer. Quinceanera, because right? yeah. they stole that too. <laughs> right. It's like, what, what will they steal next? Who, whose identity will they just completely copy paste? Well, Noor, thank you so much for coming on the Palestine pod. We genuinely appreciate it. Listen, I'm so honored that the people spoke on my behalf to demand the Noor the newer episode uh, or the newer uh, guest spot because I, I love the show and I thank you for you listening. Guys are, no. Yeah. You guys are so great. I'm like, I, my, one of my favorite things to do is to just like have like multiple episodes play back to back. Like while I'm like, do it like, and it just, I'm laughing, I'm crying. It's so many emotions. We are that so I'm flattered. Yeah. yeah no, thank I, you. Thank you so much for having me on. And I'm, yeah, I'm excited to have people hear this and be like, Oh yeah. Nora's just being a rat again. I would love to share it and have more people awesome. uh, yeah, listen to me talk Thank because you. there's there's just not enough. <laughs> you know, I have, I've, I have a I've always said that. And a Patreon Ooh. and it's like, there's just not enough there's of not me enough. talk. There needs to be yeah. more. All right. Thank Take you care, guys. Noor, bye. Thank Folks, that has been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Please go to our website, check out our full sources at www.palestinepod.com. I know I we haven't think updated that no, bitch. No, there's no sources for this episode. I'm working on updating oh. it. I'm about to oh, publish. Whatever. I'm about to publish a massive update. It's all good. But this Anyways, episode is not going to have sources. Go to our full website and <laughs> check out our resources there at www.palestinepod.com follow us on instagram at the palestine pod send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com and check us out on patreon at www.patreon.com slash palestine pod folks that's been another episode of the palestine pod thank you all so much for listening have a great day It's just you introducing her like seven <laughs> times. <laughs> Good break. Rest the rest of the day. Well, it's night for 10 you, p.m. You know so I'm mean? going yeah. to sleep. Bye. <laughs> yeah, you do that. Bye. <laughs>